Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. This week has been absolutely insane for us here at Speed Technologies. We have been working our butts off, man. It's been absolutely unbelievable. You know, summertime's always our busiest time. That's why you'll notice a lot of thought and planning and changes go into the program around that December, January area, because that's kind of our slow time. Well, summertime is anything but slow. I can't, it's, it has literally gotten to the point that I, I can't even go into, out to eat for lunch without having a side conversation with a client. And that's not me complaining. I'm not whining about it. I'm happy about it. I'm happy to be that busy. I'm happy for the opportunity to serve other people. I'm happy that I can help enough people get what they want in life so that they'll pay me to get what I want in life. So this is not me complaining. And uh, as I've said numerous times on the show, I really think that Speed Technologies and the Ask Noah show really have a unique relationship. They're joined at the hip in a lot of ways, mainly primarily because a lot of the problems and things that I see in the field give me an opportunity of something to talk about on the show. And it gives me an opportunity to enlighten you guys on the show. So uh, this last week, one of the things that we've been doing, we've been doing a ton of managed Wi-Fi, managed Wi-Fi, managed network services. And uh, coming out there, actually, the, the, um, the, our, my team is still working on hammering out the final actual release. You guys are finding out before our customers find out. Um, but starting... January of next year, we won't support or install unmanaged switches. And part of that is because it is very difficult to track down and troubleshoot problems when they occur. But the other thing is, and the more important thing is, uh, we just see a lot more VLANs going into production. VLANs for voice, VLANs for regular data, VLANs for guest data, these kinds of things. And uh, it's really gotten to a point where we just sat down, we started looking at the price of managed switches, and we're like, listen, man. You can you can pick up a managed switch so ridiculously cheap. We're talking like 35, 40 bucks. Now, it's not a full managed switch, but it's enough that to recognize VLANs, do some trunk ports and stuff like that. Uh, there, there's enough of these things that are out there and the prices come down enough that at this point we think it's time to move forward. So we started testing some less expensive managed switches. Now, I grew up in a Cisco world, went to school for Cisco, learned Cisco. I know I always like the back of my hand. I can sit down at an iOS device and I feel almost as comfortable as I do at a Linux terminal. Now, a couple of years ago on Linux Action Show, we actually did an interview with a company that was talking about how network engineers and system administrators are going to meet in the middle because what they are finding is it is too expensive to pay somebody to go to school to become a network engineer and then pay somebody else to go to school to become a network administrator or a systems administrator when the reality is that there are newer and better devices that are shipping that are their white box label stuff and they contain Linux as the operating system is using Linux 
as an open source routing and switching platform. Now, this is what Facebook is going to. This is what Google is going to. So there is a lot of industry momentum behind this, and they have put a lot of thought into the physical design of these devices. So they are very powerful switches, very capable switches, and they're built for redundancy. And uh, and so as we have watched those two things collide, we have watched Cisco drop significantly in the in the switch world, in the router world. Now, a lot of you know that Ultraspeed Technologies, we don't install Cisco equipment. We install Microtex for routers. And uh, we haven't really talked a whole lot about switches. We typically stay with HPs. So HP 1910s are real popular. 1920s are real popular. Did a lot of 1810s this week. And um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I will be the first one to say that if you actually look at the specifications issued by HP, Cisco, uh, you compare all the switches, Dell, um, Juniper, I mean, just name it. What you'll find is that HP Silicon won't actually perform at the level that HP claims it will. Uh, and so they don't meet their own specification. And so because of that, there are certain applications, certain environments, certain industries that you actually can't use those less expensive switches. You have to use a true Cisco switch. Now, uh, uh, like a Cisco, uh, I don't know, twenty. What's a what's a good Cisco model? Twenty nine sixty, somewhere somewhere in there. If you're looking at a, a brand new Cisco switch, you can probably expect to pay, oh, upwards of two grand, I suppose, for for well, maybe fifteen upwards of fifteen hundred for a twenty nine sixty switch. So that's a very expensive investment. Whereas the HP, like an eighteen, I think an eighteen a V eighteen ten. Sells brand new on Amazon for 180 bucks, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I would consider the HPs to be a carrier-grade network switch. But I was having a discussion with a good friend of mine. We were talking about switches. And uh, a lot of you have, have asked me, not necessarily on the air, I've never taken the question on the air, but people have called in uh, and talked to me or chatted on Telegram or email or run into them in person. They'll say, no, why don't you ever talk about the, the Ubiquiti USG or the Ubiquiti switches? I hear you talk so highly about the UAP AC pros. You, you talk so highly about their access points. You never talk about their switches and their routers. Why is that? Well, the truth is I don't like ubiquity switches and I don't like ubiquity routers. And uh, if you have one, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you or there's nothing wrong with them. We can still be friends. I, but there is something to be said about having console access to the device when everything goes wrong. So I want to dive into that a little bit because we have been dealing with this and we've been testing the heck out of these things. So we ordered a number of different switches and put them all in what we call the sandbox. The sandbox is just a room here at Alta Speed Technologies, actually not far from the studio that I'm sitting in. And it's just a big room with six, uh, with uh, four six-foot tables on it. And uh, we have a couple of um, 10 gig feeds that feed from our WAN switch. And, uh, and then we just have a bunch of routers and switches and computers and cables and, and space to just kind of try things out. And so we can simulate environments. We can set up an entire, uh, we can duplicate an entire setup if we have to test it or, or try something. And we can do that in our sandbox. And so the, the last week and a half, the sandbox has been dedicated to a very, very large project that we're working on. And uh, basically what we're doing is replacing network infrastructure. And we've broken it up in the project into uh, sub-projects. And uh, every two weeks, we're, we're trying to, to, to replace another section of their network. So we're building it out in the sandbox, moving it in, building it in the sandbox, moving it in, and configuring all the devices that way. 
And uh, so as we were going through and, and testing some of these things, we found a lot of things out about these cheaper switches. So the first thing is with the, with the edge switches, they have an actually can SSH into them, which is good. I still, we still haven't found a way to console into them, but yeah, they have SSH access. So there's, there's a way to configure the switch on the device itself. But with the lower end ubiquity stuff, um, if you buy the, like the eight port, uh, just the eight port managed switch, or even the uh, eight port uh, managed switch that has PoE for the, for the uh, Unify APs, the only way to manage that device is through the Unify controller. Now, when it comes to access points, I understand if you've got 500 of them, why you would just expect the controller to be online. But let me tell you something. There is nothing more frustrating when you're trying to troubleshoot a VLAN or you're trying, you've lost connectivity to an entire switch or maybe even an entire rack, and you're trying to step through that process, and I can't even log into the switch to find out what the config is showing because it can't talk to the controller for some stupid reason. That is an unacceptable way to, to manage a switch, in my opinion. And uh, so up until now, I haven't had anything concrete except my humble suspicions, having worked in this industry for 15 years, that the Unify switches, while they're good products, are really more of a prosumer thing, not really a carrier-grade, professional, commercial, enterprise-grade switch. And now I have concrete evidence to back that up. I have four of them sitting inside of our sandbox right now. I've set them, we've set all, all of them up a different way, configured them all differently, and, uh, and, and run into a number of problems with them. So the management is, is that that's the first issue I have is that I can't console into it. I, I need to be able to plug a serial cable in or USB cable, open Minicom, and be able to see what that switch's config is. The second issue we've run into is, for some idiotic reason, Ubiquity blocks you from sending VLAN 1 basically over anywhere else. And the the issue with that is, the reason that I care about VLAN 1, is, so if you're not familiar, a lot of people use VLAN 1 as their administrative LAN, and you really shouldn't, because the problem with VLAN 1 is that it you can't delete it, and it's always the management VLAN by default on every device. And so there's a lot of common wisdom that just says, do not ever use VLAN 1. So a lot of places, when they, they pull the switch in, they'll, they'll assign like a management VLAN of 10, and they just don't use VLAN 1. On the other hand, though, we do have a lot of clients that that's their infrastructure, and we can't go like this particular place. I'm not going to six different floors, uh, three switches per rack, four racks per floor. We're not we're not reconfiguring every one of those switches for, for an entirely different VLAN. And then there's all these devices, endpoint devices, access points, and stuff that are all expecting VLAN one. We just have to be able to pass VLAN one up through the network stack because that's the infrastructure that we inherited. Would we set that up if we were doing it from scratch? No, but that's what we inherited, so that's what we're doing. And so Ubiquiti's inability to pass VLAN 1 through or to be able to separate it out, I shouldn't say it won't pass it through because you can set the inside of the uh, trunk port to all. So you can pass all of the networks through, but you can't separate that VLAN 1 out. And that is proving to be a huge problem for us. So anyway, it just, it's, I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on it. Certainly don't want to dedicate a whole show to talking about switches or VLANs or anything like that. But suffice to say, if there's anybody out there that was, that was ever wondering, why don't, why don't I ever hear the SNO show? Why don't they ever talk about the Unify switches or the USGs? They always talk about the access points. That's why. Uh, they don't, they are not a enterprise grade switch. They are a prosumer device that's really intended for uh, a, a small to medium business that wants to do a lot of their networking in-house, needs more power than the little dumb five port switch at OfficeMax will, will provide you um, and can't do much more. But 
in that category, in that category, I have a small office. I just want to, I want to mirror some ports or I want to do some, uh, some, some VLANing, this, that, or the other. We have a better suggestion for you. We have a switch. I'm pulling it up here. It is the TP-Link. And what this TP-Link does and why I like it is it is a managed switch. So it, 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 you can't do a lot of really advanced stuff on it, but basic things like mirroring a port and, and doing VLANs and stuff like that, it will work. $37. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. This thing is absolutely fantastic. And so this is what we would recommend if you're interested in, uh, oh no, this is what we would recommend. Uh, this is what I recommend if you're interested in a, uh, in a managed switcher, if you have a small little office, uh, we'll, uh, we'll take a look at this. And I, I just saw, I was just went to pull up a phone call and I saw that, uh, our caller dropped. So if that caller is still there, uh, just give me a give me a call back and, and we'll get you on the air right away. Uh, again, phone lines are open this hour, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I wanted to, or actually, I guess it was just last week, I wanted to follow up on, an, on a call that we took. We took a call where a gentleman was asking about the best way to deal with a remote desktop solution where they were transitioning from an all windows environment to an all Linux environment. And he outlined the way that they were using RDP and he wanted to know how can I replicate that process as simply as possible in Linux. And we had made a number of different suggestions. I, we had talked about XRDP. We had talked about X to go and uh, none of them really quite fit his use case, but I, I think he was, he sounded like a savvy enough guy that I think he was going to figure something out based on the information we gave him. Well, one of the gentlemen in it was either the chat room or uh, or in or email or telegram somewhere had had followed up with me. Oh, it was on the Reddit. Fo- followed up with me on uh, reddit.com slash r slash show and said, hey, for that gentleman that wrote in and said that he wanted a desktop remote desktop solution that would work very well on Linux. Tell him to check out no machine. Now, I don't know a whole lot about No Machine, so I, I can't put my name behind it and say, yep, this is what we absolutely recommend. But I've spent just a couple of minutes uh, looking at it, looking through the website. I watched a couple of videos on setting it up. Looks pretty cool. The only real downside I could find to it is uh, that it's proprietary. But other than that, it looks like a really solid system. And so uh, we're going to, uh, the Ask No Show, we're going to check this No Machine out. We're going to take a look at it. We're going to see uh, how it works. And uh, we'll report back to you. Uh, <laughs> chat room's giving me a hard time. Um, but yeah, so uh, so we're, we're going to check that out and, and talk back to you. But if that caller is out there and is saying, hey, you know, I, I just wanted an update on on what would work well for me, that's what we'd recommend. Check out No Machine. Let me know what you think, because it sounds like it will meet all of your requirements. Let's go to the phones again. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Tom from Detroit. Hey, Tom. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Oops. Turns out I have to push the button, Tom. I'm sorry. Hey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. <laughs> That's all right. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. How can we help? Well, uh, it's actually pretty apropos with the first part of the show that you were talking about. Um, I've been uh, toying with PF Sense the, uh, for a couple of years now and uh, got myself a decently powered uh, server, at least for myself, as my first server. And really, the um, what should I say? The muse of, of virtualization is calling me and was just wondering if you had any thoughts, one, on PF Sense in general, 
But two, uh, you know, I look online about putting your firewall or edge firewall in a virtual um, machine and, and problems with that, you know, as everything you see arguments either way. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. Yeah, actually, so... Um the, the truth, Tom, is that a lot of people are doing this. A lot of people are going this direction. So there are a number of different options out there. Obviously, um, there is things like, is it Sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S, I think is how you pronounce it. There's Untangle. Yeah, there's, I've heard of that one. Yep, yep. So there's there's a bunch of these software-based solutions. In fact, there's one, and I'm intentionally not going to mention it on the air because we are ta- we're in we're in cahoots with the developer. And uh we, let's just say something really cool might be happening on the Asno show, and I don't want to blow that. Um, but there, there, there's another, there's another one that's out there that's pretty good too. Um, Router OS you actually will run on an X64 platform, so you can actually virtualize the microtext that that we install and run that exact same software inside of a virtual machine. Now, there is a lot of advantages to that. The first being that you don't have to dedicate one piece of hardware to that, so you can have a one physical server. And that is virtualizing a bunch of different utilities for you. So it's running your router, which you really don't need to dedicate an entire machine to. Maybe it's running like a media server or something like that. Uh, and, and you can you can bundle all of these things up and 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 stick them inside of a single box. Now, when you do that, Tom, one of the things that you have to pay attention to is you need to allocate enough bandwidth on the physical devices so that you don't slow down, you don't bottleneck your own network, right? So for example, I'll give you an example. So if you have a virtual server and let's say you have a one, you have a single one gig network jack on that back of that server, right? Your bottleneck, your your bandwidth for every, all the traffic that comes in or out of your network, plus all of the traffic that is leaving any of those virtual guests has to funnel down into a single one gig connection. Right. So you want to pay attention to that. And so for so, for example, if it was me, if I'm doing that, I'm buying like a Dell R710 somewhere in there where I have a couple of NICs on the back of the of the server and I can dedicate one of those for my LAN and or one of those for the WAN connection for the router. And then, you know, maybe or maybe I dedicate one for the LAN and then I dedicate one for the for the other servers uh, that are connecting through there. But one of those ports I'd probably pass directly through um, to my router and whatever you're going to run on there is, you know, is, is fine. Um, but yeah, uh, virtualizing firewalls. Yeah, that's, that's, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, that's what I was uh, thinking about it because I have the one built-in NIC that, that came on the machine, but also have a quad port. And uh, I, I do have, I know you were just uh, not talking great about them, but I have a Unify switch that handles LACP. And really it's kind of what, what, calls me to it the one in for the for the WAN and then doing an LACP bond out to the switch with the with the other four. And then of course with all the virtual machines that I have um, on the box itself, you have the the um, um, virtual bridge that you can, you know, really get some high speed through there because you're not relying on copper. So that's kind of what's uh what had me thinking about it and really kind of toying with the idea so yeah absolutely and you know i i I, again i don't mean to to beat up too hard on on unify switches they're great devices as long as you understand what you're getting sounds like for the environment that you're using more than enough right it's when you start to get 
when you start to stack 30 of them or 40 of them into a building and somebody makes a change on a VLAN and all of a sudden you lose access to the management VLAN on 30 of the 40 switches and you don't know exactly where that problem is and now you can't log into 30 of those switches to see wh how they're even configured or where they're passing traffic or where the problem is, right? In my world, it, it gets a little bit different. Yeah, right. No, I just I just have the one in my basement, so uh, you know it, it's it's good for my needs. Yeah, absolutely. And let me ask too, if you don't mind, is it an edge switch or is it one of the like the the little eight port jobbies? Uh, it's actually it's the rack mount, the Unify sixteen, um, okay, one hundred and fifty watt model. So I I can use it for POE for um, I have a couple of uh, APs around, so. Okay, so I was I was just looking up that one. I believe that one is an edge device, right? It's an edge switch. I'm pretty sure the 16 port one is. Um, actually, yeah, you're right. Good, good, yeah. Yeah, good call on that. So here's the great thing about that. That one actually does have an interface into it. Now it's not a true console interface, as far as I'm aware. You still are SSHing in, so I mean, it it requires that you didn't muck up the uh, the IP address that's managed to or that's assigned to the, the switch but at least I can plug a cable into it and log into the device itself it doesn't have to talk out to in our case our our controller is on the quote unquote cloud it's I mean it's it's in our data center here at AltaSpeed but if if the client loses access out to the internet then everything will continue to function the way it is currently programmed but I can't push new configuration to it and that is what makes me nervous and even if they have an on-site controller it 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 presupposes that everything is functioning right on the network and everything is configured correctly on the network for those network devices to talk out to the controller, even if it's co-located. So for those reasons, I'm not a big fan of it. But yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and virtualize. And, uh, you know, I, uh, Tom, if you're interested, uh, I can add you to there's a there's a small group. Uh, that we have where we talk about like home lab type things and building servers in your home and, and different projects. And a lot of those guys are virtualizing routers and stuff like that. If you like, I can put you back on hold. I can get your information and I can see about getting you an invitation to that group. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. I'll put you back on hold and uh, Sarah can uh, Sarah can pick up and take your information and, uh, and we'll get back to you on that. And yeah, no, I, I, I said this once before. I'll say it again. Home servers... Uh, are the are the next upcoming thing? We have done more home server installs, home server based things in 2018 than I think we've done in the last 10 years that that we've been running AltaSpeed Technologies. I mean, it's gone just boom, boom, it's just crazy, uh, and that's a good thing. I think people are paying attention to privacy. I think people are paying attention to security. I think that subscription models are starting to die off because people are looking up and they're going, man, I'm spending X amount of dollars every single month on subscriptions of things. I'd rather just host them myself. And uh, oftentimes that leads to a, a somewhat comical discussion. You know, when you're sitting there with the, with the ISP company and we're doing the network and you've got a guy saying, well, I want to install that Cody box where I can get the free TV shows. And you know, the ISP is sitting there going, you can't really do that. That's pirating and it's technically illegal. And, you know, then I'm sitting here and I'm like, hey, listen, who are we to judge? We're just here to install the technology. You know, they want a Cody box. Cody's good for a lot of other things other than, you know, just the illegal part of it. I'm going to install it. So, uh, so, but yeah, no, I, I think that is, uh, I, I think virtualizing a router is a great idea. I think virtualizing almost everything is a great idea. The only thing I don't support virtualizing, and I had an in-depth discussion with this with Alan Jude when he was here, is uh, don't virtualize FreeNAS. Virtualize ZFS all you want. But don't virtualize FreeNAS. FreeNAS wants to be able to talk directly to the hard drives. And so when you 
when you do that, when you virtualize FreeNAS, you eliminate the ability for FreeNAS to directly under, to, to have complete control over those physical devices. And so, as Alan was telling me, if, if FreeNAS decides to do a flush, all of those other virtual guests that are sitting on top of that host, they're all affected, even if you pass the disk controller through. So you'd want to have a separate storage array. Now, what you could do, and uh, what we have done, is you could set up a system in such a way where you have a NAS storage device and uh, and and then you connect that NAS storage device to um, FreeNAS. So, you, I mean, that's, that's a way to do it. You could have like an eSATA enclosure or something like that and connect that and pass that enclosure, that hard drive system directly through to FreeNAS. That's one way to do it. But uh, don't virtualize FreeNAS. Kevin is calling from Pittsburgh. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Thanks for calling so, in. How can we help? My question. So my daughter wears a glucose sensor made by Dexcom. It's a Dexcom G5. Okay. And what that allows her to do, instead of pricking her finger like 10 times a day to get a glucose reading, it will take a glucose reading every five minutes and send it to a phone via Bluetooth. Okay. And then that allows, there's a sharing app, so she can be anywhere, and it can share it back to my phone and my wife's phone, so we can always keep track of what her glucose level is. But she's nine, and I was wondering if there's some type of Bluetooth repeater or extender that we could set up, like in the house or the yard, because it's limited to... The phone has to be within, you know, Bluetooth range of that sensor. Sure. She wears a little strap and carries it on her waist, but, you know, in the summertime and stuff, it'd be great if she wasn't tied to that. Okay, I got you. So uh, walk me through this a little bit. The meter itself directly communicates with the phone, or there's an intermediary device? No, it... it either communicates directly via Bluetooth to the phone. There's an app called okay. Dexcom uh, Share. And then, or there's a little receiver that she can carry around also, but that just, you can't share it out. So it only communicates to that receiver and that's it. So I have it paired to a phone for her and and it'll read on there. You know, that'll act as the receiver for the, the glucose sensor but that just means she has to have that with her i got you she's out in the yard on the swing set or anywhere it has to be within so many feet to work i got you so we want to get her away from having the phone it's not a function of having you don't want to have to have the phone it's you want to get her away from you don't want to have to have her carrying the phone all the time right just while she's at home anyway you know when she's at school or wherever it just Like I said, she wears it on a little fanny pack, and it it works great, but we just don't want to have to have her have that thing attached to her all summer long, and it's a wonderful device, so we'd like to see if we could get something Bluetooth that would emulate the phone and just, you know, like Wi-Fi in the house does. Yeah, I got you. So uh, the first thing is I would keep my mind out, or I'd keep my eye out for... uh, Anything, any, for as these things become more advanced, uh, uh, not sure if you're aware, but my, uh, my dad is a, a cardiologist. And so oftentimes I'm privy to see what is coming down the pipe, not so much in the diabetic world, but certainly in the cardiac world. 
And uh, every, it seems like every couple of months, there's a lot of money to make cooler and cooler stuff. So it would not surprise me if in the next year, maybe even now, if the next meter doesn't actually come with something like a built-in LTE modem or a built-in Wi-Fi, something like that, right? So that's that's the first thing I would say is just keep keep a uh, eye out for that. Now, the only thing that I'm aware of that does what you're talking about is a, a device called a, I think it is, S- it's called uh, an SMA Bluetooth repeater. And um, the I'll have a link for you in the show notes. And I'm, I'm not 100%. I just did a search through our company uh, database where we uh, install different products for Bluetooth just to see what Bluetooth devices we've installed. And this is one of the devices we've installed. Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about it other than the fact that it is called a Bluetooth repeater. <laughs> so I would assume, okay. yeah, and so it, and so it, uh, it, 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 I'll look into more of exactly what this device does and if it would solve it for you. And I'll, of course, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. And uh, I will keep my eye out. And if I come across something that uh, would definitely work for you or would solve that problem, uh, is it all right if we uh, take down your phone number and that way we can get that information back to you? Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I'll put you back on hold. We'll see if uh, Sarah can grab your uh, your contact as well. We're keeping Sarah busy this hour, I tell you what. Again, phone lines are open, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, I want to go back to an email that I got um, just a couple of weeks ago. We talked about Chromebooks on this show, and I asked the question, if we get to a point where Google Chrome OS is as close as we ever get to desktop Linux, is that an acceptable? Is that an Is that an, is that acceptable to you? And uh, a gentleman wrote to me, very carefully worded, uh, very well thought out response, and he said, hey, "Hello, Noah. I'm writing to you in response to a question on the episode of Ask Noah Show. You brought up the whole thing of Google making Chromebooks into actual Linux machines." And the step after that possibly being Google could make Linux popular, but that would mean that we'd have to swallow a big pill. Well, let me set this as a ground rule for you. Google can stay the heck out of my kernel. Google can stay the heck out of my machine, your machine, our systems, or those systems that we build to our specifications. I am terrified that someday we will live in the now Apple or Microsoft world of Linux. You don't own that. It isn't yours, but you can use it until we don't want you to. Nothing gives me the feeling of dread more than this. And to be clear, I'm an outlier. I dream of a Debian or Arch-based phone. I want to run. I want to run Linux on everything. I want to run it on. I want to run games, and I want them to run locally and not in a Windows VM. I want to use AMD GPU with my RX 580 or Vega 8 laptop and be able to contribute to a bug list to better the system that I love to use. Ubuntu Phone, as far as I know, is the closest thing that we've ever had for phones. But for everything else, I can do that. Linux allows us to do that, but I fear that someday Linux will just be the new Mac OS. And I know somebody is going to say, but my GNU slash Linux GPL license says otherwise. But trust me, big companies give very little amounts of crap about license infraction or anything, really. They will modify it to their way to get control. And let's be honest, this is the way the American economy works if you pay attention. So for me, I won't swallow that pill. I'll keep running Void Linux and Slackware to ensure control over something that I own. I will continue to use something that I bought for my own way. And if we allow some of this crap to slip at all, then we'll get the rug pulled out from under us as fast as possible. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. If not with Linux, it's something else as usual. Although there is one time 
Microsoft executive tried to buy Linux. I believe the comment was something to akin, if they're a competitor, we can just buy them out and they aren't a problem. If I can find a reference to that, I'll send it along. But it was during the Windows 95 and 98 days, and look at us now. We're doing everything right, and MS is bleeding developers right and left. No wonder they're dying, diving for Linux devs. Some Apple and ARM infrastructure, they have to run Mac OS and Linux perfectly. It'll be the only way to keep their users as far as they can tell. Because to keep the city companies out of my small town systems, our quiet little village can be popular in growth without corruption or perversion, thank you very much. And if Linux gets screwed, well, I'm going to Amiga Systems and I'll watch all you guys die in a fire. Not my problem to fix at that point. Dahmer. Now, the thing is, I don't agree with everything that Dahmer said in that particular email, but I think that he took a lot of time to articulate his points well and i think that the vast majority of you if you're listening to this program if you're listening to me behind a microphone then you care about owning your own technology and you know that was somewhat of a rhetorical question and you know darn well that i'm not using a chromebook as my everyday laptop i'll try it for a week just to see how it works but but come on i mean i think we all know where i'm going with that well i have gotten to know Dahmer over the past couple of days and uh joining me on the program is mr Dahmer. welcome to the show sir hello Hey, glad to have you. So uh, the reason I wanted to bring Dahmer onto the show is we got into a very interesting deep discussion on the current status of laptops. And Dahmer, you have a unique perspective on what should be the new standard. Yeah, so where exactly should I start with that? Well, let me ask you this. I think there's a large portion of the audience that would say, I should be able to go into Best Buy and spend two or $300 and get a 500 gig, 5200 RPM drive, and with four gigs of RAM and a 1366 by 768 display and a plastic housing. And I would say that's, that's pretty typical of the run-of-the-mill laptop that you find most people with. And most people would say that's good enough. Do you agree with that? Um, no, but only because I probably have a very skewed perspective on what hardware should be. What gave you that um, skewed per perspective? Well, for a couple of years now, uh, probably since like, I don't know, 2007, maybe, um, I've kind of always had access to workstation type laptops. Now my first laptop that I had was a kind of crappy little Dell Inspiron B120 and it ran like crap, but all it did was write papers. After that, I ended up with something along the lines of a desktop replacement and kind of have had that since. And maybe, maybe that skews the perspective a little bit, but it was the fact that it was, you know, unlimited power in such a small package. But I kind of think that laptops shouldn't be quote unquote netbooks, as I call them. Okay. More capable than. Sure. You know, think that they should pack some power <laughs> in that. More capable than an atom. No, that makes sense. So let me ask you this. Is it just about power for you? Is it just about, you know, cramming an i7 in there and 16 gigs of RAM and, uh, you know, and a quad-core processor? Or does build quality play into that? Does resolution play into that? Uh, again, subjective. I have eye problems. So to be honest, 1366 by 768, perfectly fine for me. I can actually see everything on the screen. Um, I think it's kind of silly that we have laptops that are 14 or 15 inch with uh, 4K screens now. That's just me. I also like to have full resolution on my display, so you know you got that skew. Um, but an i an i7 maybe maybe not so much. Not for everyone. You have that old um, thing where you know, all the gamers want i7s, but you know they need 
i3s at most, right? Because they're they're gonna the old meme of oh I'm gonna buy a workstation I'm gonna buy a Mac Pro to play Minecraft on that old joke, right? Um, but I I think the I think the standard at least should be something along the lines of four cores, maybe four threads, maybe eight threads. I don't have a clear opinion on that really, um, but something more than the same kind of technology we saw from Core 2 Duo laptops from sure. 2009. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting, uh, Dumber, because we have not seen a lot of advancement in laptops in the last couple of years, right? We put a new rev, we put a new uh, rev number at the end of the processor, and uh, but the clock speed isn't climbing drastically, and what the processor is capable of is not climbing drastically. Certainly, a processor today is better than the processor of yesterday. Is better than the processor of five years ago or ten years ago. But the reality is, it's it, we are we are not seeing sweeping new changes every time we release a new processor as we were maybe 15, 16 years ago. You know, when we went from the Core Two Duo series, you know, to the i series, there was a there was a serious performance increase, and 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 there was also a serious power consumption decrease. Increase when even when you look inside of between like the fourth gen, like a fourth gen i5 and a third gen i5 or second gen i5, you notice that the power consumption is just ridiculously crazy. And we see that when we're bidding out systems and they say, yeah, we need to upgrade these particular systems because they're just drawing too much power. They're costing too much money. And so that's been that's been an interesting thing to follow. But, you know, what I gathered from talking for you for the next from the past couple of days is that you won't settle for a Chromebook. Right. Um, I think the best the best answer for me at the moment, and I have a poll that I can even link you to. Um, I'm active on the level one text forums, and uh, so we kind of had conversations like this every once in a while. And mm -hmm. I'm actually looking at buying a new laptop, and I kind of looked at what I was going to look at, and you know, I could get a, I could actually get a rather nice Chromebook. What was it? The the um, Acer C720 when that came out. Yes. No, the one of the one of the Acer ones were absolutely ridiculously specced and like could play. Uh, I'm losing names now. Skyrim, Skyrim when it was out was like, oh my god, you can't run that on anything. And then a couple of years later, there it is on this tiny little netbook thing. So I, I could, I could. It wouldn't be a problem, but it would drive me insane. Um, well, let me ask you this, Dahmer. So the chat room is pointing something interesting out. So they're talking about with the advent of Thunderbolt, at direct okay. access to the PCI bus. Do we still need really, really powerful laptops, or is it okay to have maybe a slightly less powerful laptop, but have a lot of powerful components connected inside of some sort of a Thunderbolt 3 dock that we then access when we're sitting down to play a game? So when I'm on the road and I'm just checking my email, browsing YouTube, you know, maybe watching a couple videos for entertainment or, or reading, you know, some eBooks for that, I, I just integrated graphics is fine. N you know, n not a ton of outboard processing is fine. But then when I sit down and I want to be connected to two 4K monitors, and, uh, you know, I want to do some video editing and stuff like that. Well, now I need a trackball and I need a special keyboard and I need the uh, a gra an out external uh, graphics card, stuff like that. Do you think there's some merit to that or is that is that would you totally not consider that? I mean, I have considered it uh, while I've been looking at laptops. I've been looking at laptops for probably the last six months. Um, I have considered that. I went to System76 and asked, hey, um, I would rather not have a NVIDIA card in my laptop and maybe I don't want to game while I'm on the bus or something while I'm going to work or something, but I kind of like to have a GPU. So is there any outlooks that like, maybe we'll get Ryzen APUs? I don't know. Um, 
And I didn't really get much of a response other than, well, we're looking into it. Um, and no, I don't think, you know, everyone has to have a 1060 or a 1080 or something in their laptop. Absolutely not. I think the best example for that, and maybe one be between one and two of the laptops I'm looking at buying for myself, should be pretty much the... Oh my god, AMD Epic in a laptop. That'd be horrible. Um, I think the best standard that we should have for a normal laptop is the HP XP... Uh, X360-15Z. It's got a 2500U in it, and a Ryzen 2500U. It's got a nice touchscreen. It's got a decent handling of RAM. It can go up to 32 gigs of RAM for something that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise think, hey, that could be a workstation. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a nice keyboard. It's backlit. can do NVMe. I think that should be the average standard of really anyone around. Um, and a about five or six years ago, I think, we saw a lot of two-in-ones come out, and everyone was like, that's going to be the future, and now we've kind of gone to something that's more designed like a phone, which I call a, a netbook, really. Uh, a simple i5 or a simple i7 that's two cores, underpowered, is probably not worth the $1,200 that we pay for. <coughs> MacBook. <coughs> um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know... It's, it just seems like we don't have the firepower that we were really expecting to have a couple of years ago. You know, it's interesting. It seems like we're becoming less capable than what we should. You know, it's interesting because have. you're not the first person to bring this up, right? Linus Torvalds himself has talked about how underpowered and underwhelmed he is with the current standard of laptop and how that needs to change. And it was one of the reasons that he was one of the first users of the original Chrome uh, Chromebook Pixel. It was one of the reasons that he was a MacBook Air user for a while is because he wants really high-end hardware and that is is difficult to find. Now, I would agree with you that I think that you can, especially today, if the argument was never true before, it is certainly true today that you can buy a lot more performing hard, better performing hardware from alternate vendors other than Apple. The only reason you buy a MacBook is if you want to use their 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 garbage dumpster of an operating system uh, because you are you can't figure out how to use other software if, if that's the if that's your work case then i guess you're stuck uh, you know with a mac other than that there's always going to be a better option and i'll give everybody out there a guarantee if you watch when is wwdc coming up like it's like june 4th right uh uh, day 2018. No uh, I, I try and like half it. Yeah, June 4th through 8th. So it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. So we'll find out in, in, in two weeks. I'll bet you. I'll bet you you'll see a couple of things. You'll definitely, well, this isn't really a secret. I'm not guessing here, but they have talked about how they're going to be working on cross-platform applications. So they're trying to bring iOS applications over to the Mac. I'll bet you you see very little, if any, iteration on their MacBook, on the Mac Pro, on the iMac Pro, on stuff like that. They want to move that customer base over to iOS. I guarantee it because that's where their money is. That's where their incentive is. That's where their customer base is, and that's notoriously where they have done very, very well. If you are in charge of making money for Apple, that's the play you make. That's how you make a lot of money. As for Linux users, we should look at that as a massive opportunity to grab some of these developers that up till now have been tolerating macOS and bring them over to Linux. Hey, Dahmer, I want to thank you for, for taking some time to come on the show and share your opinions with us. People uh, want to check out more of what you're doing. and, and, and what, Let me ask you something before I let you go. What is what are your top contenders for a laptop? If you give me a sec, I can even pull out the poll. Yeah, we can do that. Oh, you have a poll what going. I have. Yeah, on uh, the level one text forums. Okay. Um, bas basically every time that I'm looking at something that's like, eh, I don't know exactly what to say for 
you know, what I want to do, then I just throw it out to there and the lounge from there kind of trolls around for a little bit and kind of makes some jokes. And then the actual serious people come in and have rational opinions. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, it's just at this point, it's a choice of four laptops, the HP Envy X360, as I said earlier. Okay. Um, and then three that I might may or may not, um, kind of judge for what they are. So there's an HP Omen out there with a 7700HQ and an RX 580, which I'm very interested in because it's one of few laptops with an AMD GPU, mm -hmm. next to the Envy, of course. Um, the new 6-core Oryx Pro, which I'm not keen on because, frankly, I think it's kind of a spit in the face for a Linux company to take the GPU dev uh, producer that kind of spits in the face of Linux and then puts it in everything and then goes, look, it's great. And then the drivers don't work after that's two a weeks. Fair, that's a fair <laughs> point. Yeah, that's a fair point. And then lastly, the Asus uh, ROG GL702ZC, which I completely forgot about, but has a Ryzen 1700 and a 580 in it, which is a pretty close contender for the Envy, but eh, battery power, I'm kind of weighing between the two. Okay. Well, I'll leave it at this, Dahmer. I really appreciate people like you who can dig into some of these hardware things because it is not my strong suit. Uh, I like I like hardware. I like playing with hardware. I can tell you what works well for me, but I'm a terrible use case and I make a terrible hardware review because at the end of the day, well, it turns out that the terminal Thunderbird and Firefox runs on pretty much anything. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Ray calls us from Oregon. Hey, Ray, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Noah, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I had a question. Several months ago, you did a show about kind of owning your own device and um, or taking control of your own environment. I've been looking for like a six or sentient uh, screen uh this pure Android that I could get. I have a Samsung Galaxy Note 4, and it's kind of uh, dodgy and old, and it doesn't respond. And it's really frustrating dealing with it. I just want to know if you had any suggestions. Sure. So you are looking for a... I'm sorry, what was the screen size that, that would be ideal to you? Uh, six, six inch. I'm not a young guy anymore, so started wearing glasses about six years ago so i got you a little bigger and i have huge hands i got you and you're looking for basically as close to stock android as you can get yep exactly that makes perfect sense let me ask you a question are you okay installing your own rom would you be comfortable flashing your own operating system onto the phone Sure, I rooted this device, so yeah, I'll give it a go. I've done that kind of stuff. Yep. Great. The, I've got two options for you. The first is uh, Lineage OS, which is pretty much the go-to standard. By default, it will you will your battery life will go from like two or three days, uh, or like a day to like a week, uh, and and that's partly because Google Play Services isn't involved. But what's going to happen is you're quickly going to find that maybe a lot of the stuff that you do you're going to want to use Google Play services for. And so installing it, they literally give you an APK. You can drop it on there, run it, and it lets you uh, run this APK and actually have Google Play services installed. So that's a really fantastic way to do that. Uh, and, and the second thing I will give you, or a suggestion to try, is Copperhead OS. See, if you've not heard of Copperhead OS, it is a really great alternative ROM to... Uh, to and to android and uh ray i i, I want to use your point to segue into something real quick a couple of weeks ago i got a letter in the mail and it says uh, dear noah i tried to load copper os onto this phone following the directions from their website i got an unlocked phone from their supported list but i ran into many problems mainly i do not speak the magic incantations that are required 
and decided it best to hire somebody to do this for me. Almost the same time, I heard your podcast where you did a review of a different phone with a custom Android firmware, Lineage OS, I believe. Uh, about a month, I'm, yes, I'm about a month behind the shows. I apologize, but I have watched and read reviews on Copperhead OS, and I want to give it a try. Uh, but no review came from somebody I trust as much for you. I would love if you would be able to install Copperhead OS on this phone uh, and use it for as long as you need to to do a proper review uh, and then mail it back to me, uh, Google Free. It has an active SIM card through T-Mobile. I've enclosed some money to help pay for the time it takes. Let me know if you need anything or any more money or information. If I do, if you do not want the money, please donate it to the Copperhead people for their hard work on their open source project. If you don't have time to do the review, just mail the phone or install the OS, just mail, mail the phone back and donate the rest of the money. And uh, first of all, I want to just say thank you. Uh, that is, I take that as a huge compliment, a huge compliment when somebody is, uh, when somebody puts that kind of faith or trust in me. And so Ray, I just want to let you know, we will be doing a review of Copperhead OS uh, thanks to uh, this young lady who sent in her phone at her own cost and funded uh, our text to be able to actually flash the thing with Copyright OS. And I think they have that done. I, I'll double check on it. And uh, we're going to bring that and uh, probably have that review. So keep an eye on the show because we'll have more information coming to you about uh, alternative ROMs. Now, uh, this comes. This article comes to us from RedHat.com. I want to dig into this a little bit. Red Hat has reprised its role once more for the newly disclosed speculative store buffer bypass, CVE. Over the course of the past few months, we have further refined our understanding of many of the nuances of speculative ex execution attacks to develop mitigations for the latest vulnerability while working with vendors under an industry embargo process. We are proud of the countless hours that we invested to make those mitigations available to our customers on a timely basis. Over the coming weeks, we plan to share more technical details. We work with customers to deploy these latest updates. So, so, and they go into this example, they use this coffee shop example on exactly how this latest vulnerability works. Now, this is really just a variant of the original vulnerability of speculative execution that we covered in depth on the Ask Noah show a couple of months ago. And Red Hat did such a good job. I actually reached out to them and I said, you guys did an amazing job on this, on this video that you put together and it explains things so clearly so well. Is that something I would be able to share with my audience? And they said, hey, buddy, guess what? Everything we do at this company is open source. And so that video is licensed as Creative Commons. So you are more than welcome to play it. Use it in any production. We don't care. So I'm going to let Red Hat actually explain this. If the news about a computer security threat that lets cyber criminals steal sensitive information through any web browser is giving you deja vu, you're not alone. Many are comparing this new issue, known as speculative store buffer bypass, to the Spectre and Meltdown threats in early 2018. And just like when Spectre and Meltdown were announced, software patches are ready to help with this new threat. So what makes speculative store buffer bypass different? Imagine your computer is a restaurant. Waiters move from table to table writing down orders, called stores, in their ticket booklets. Think of these booklets as memory buffers that allow them to serve several tables more efficiently. At some point, a waiter will go to a shared station to transfer orders from his booklet to his customer's bills. He may decide to print out some bills in advance to have them ready, but to do this he has to speculate that he's the only one serving his customers. Usually he's right. But sometimes a customer will flag down a different waiter and ask to add something else. Can I get some coffee? The new waiter adds the item to the order, but now the printed bill is incorrect. 
When it's time to pay, the first waiter double checks and sees that his customer's order no longer matches the printed bill. He throws the old bill out and prints out a new one. A similar process is going on in your actual computer, where processors are like those busy waiters, storing data to and loading data from memory addresses. They are buffering requests and using speculative execution to make sure all this happens as quickly as possible. In order to avoid errors, the processors will double-check if any address used in a load was part of a recent store to that same address. If so, the speculative data gets thrown out, just like our waiter threw out the incorrect bill. The problem is, this speculation occurs in a shared, unsecured area, so it's possible for unauthorized users to see it. This allows an attacker to create a malicious piece of code that fools the processor into reading from one address while it thinks it's reading from somewhere else. By tricking the processor, attackers can steal data, like passwords and credit card numbers, undetected. So how can you protect yourself against a threat that doesn't look like a threat? Technology companies have come together again to create patches that turn off speculative execution for store buffers. This stops unauthorized users from exploiting this vulnerability. It's critical to install these patches right away and stay up to date with the latest releases of operating systems. This will reduce performance slightly for some operations, but not as significantly as the patches for Spectre and Meltdown. Patches will continue to be optimized to reduce the impact on performance even more, and future hardware designs will eliminate this vulnerability altogether. New technology threats aren't deja vu. They're a continuing challenge we all need to deal with. That's why it's essential to keep the lines of communication open among technology companies, communities, and researchers to head off threats before they become huge problems. Now, I was doing research on this latest vulnerability because, of course, you, if there's anything you can count on, it's that the Ask Noah show is going to do hours of meticulous research and condense it down into a one-hour podcast or radio show so that you don't have to do that research but can get the same information. And as I was doing the research, I came across uh, some of the articles that Red Hat had, had produced because Red Hat has really been on the leading edge of all of this. And um, as I was going through some of this and, and learning about this particular this new vulnerability, this new play on the vulnerability, uh, I came across that video. It was actually sent to me by a Red Hat employee. And I, I, I just looked at it and I threw out all the show prep I had for explaining this and thought, I'm just going to let these guys do it because they do it way better than I ever could. Uh, and so we'll have that that video linked in the show notes if you want to see the visual uh, visuals that go along with it. Best I can tell after digging in and doing some research on this, a lot, Intel is, the reason that Intel and AMD are not rushing to ship the patch processors at the hardware level is because there's a lot of security analysts that believe that is it is too difficult to actually perform this attack. It's technically possible. The vulnerability technically exists, but it would be very difficult to execute this out and actually yield any results. Um, you'd have to, there's a lot of things that have to be in place for for this attack to work out. So it's not quite as severe something like Heartbleed, um, and, and so for that reason. This is nothing really to be terribly alarmed about. Just understand that the companies that make your software, if you're using Red Hat, if you're using Fedora, I'm sure the Canonical folks are doing just as good of a job at keeping up on all this stuff. They are working to keep those systems patched. And so as long as you're staying updated, you're fine. And you can actually go into uh, your um, your processor. You can actually see, uh, I think it's LSCPU will actually tell you if the Spectre and Meltdown patches have been applied. 
Again, open phones this hour, one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, um, I've been having uh, virtualization problems. My problem is getting, I, I know you have other options, so I'll have to show you what option I'm giving. I'm trying to get guest edition to install in Linux on a Linux guest, and it just keeps refusing. Do you have any ideas on what other options I could use for any of those functionalities? Yeah, sure. What Linux distro are you using for the guest? Well, right now, the, uh, the, the I'm trying to get guests to work on the newest Ubuntu's. Oh, okay. Um, Mate, and I was and I was tinkering with KD, but KD pissed me off. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, the the um, Ubuntu Ubuntu proper is you know is 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 going to work the best now. I, I I'm not exactly sure how you're installing VirtualBox, James, but I just downloaded it off a of VirtualBox site. And uh, I'm running the latest version of Ubuntu. I'm running the LTS inside of a virtual box, and I had guest editions installed just fine for me. So if if you're, you know, I, I have had issues, James, where people will install it from their local repos, and that has had problems. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but oftentimes they don't carry the latest version. In fact, my wife had an issue where she had installed from the repos rather than downloading from virtualbox.org, and it actually tanked her entire system. It it loaded some kernel module or didn't load some kernel module whole system tank she couldn't even boot and uh i tried for about a day to try to fix it and eventually i just went you know what all your stuff's on c file it's all synced over anyway it's just easier to reinstall and uh, she was using ubuntu gnome at the time so she just changed to the ubuntu proper channel and that's what she's on now so she can participate in all of the updates I want to talk a, a little bit about what uh some a special episode that we're going to be doing coming up on Saturday June 9th a lot of people in the Ask Noah show have divided into, there's two distinct groups. There is the Linux group, the people that like Linux and Linux on the desktop and all of that. And within that Linux group, there is a small new group that has formed and uh, it's small business owners. And uh, we have a, a small little group and we have uh, little meetings and, and stuff like that. We chat and, and hang out and talk about our small business. Most of us are small business owners. Some of people are looking to get into small business. Um, but we just all really have a passion for it. Now, I am the son of a small business owner. My wife's family owns a small business. I own a small business. Uh, so so I've, I've, and I've always had little things that I have done with small business. And the uh, first job was for a small business, for example. Uh, and so I'm passionate that way. And so Saturday, June 9th at 1 p.m. Central, that's 11 a.m. Pacific, we are going to be hosting a special edition of the Ask Noah to Show, a small business theme hour. If you own a small business... If you work for a small business, if you've dreamed of running a small business, we want to hear from you. So I, we're, we're going to clear the phone lines off at the top of the hour. And anybody that wants to talk about small business, ask questions about small business, talk, anything at all that relates to small business, that's the hour to do it. Again, that's Saturday, June 9th, 1 p.m. Central. That's 11 a.m. Pacific. We'd love to hear from you. If you can, shoot me an email, live at asknoahshow.com ahead of time. Let me know that you're going to be calling in. That way, we just kind of have an idea of who's going to be there. And uh, we're going to have a couple of really cool guests set up for you i think you're really going to enjoy the episode so if you don't usually tune in live that would be a time to do it because you can get your questions answered hey did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast to subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode visit podcast.asknoahshow.com there you'll find not only the latest episode but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode 
You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. There's actually a huge Twitter thing that's going to be coming up next week. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Vox Telsus for providing our phone system better producer and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com. Mm-hmm.